All right. Well, I want to uh, welcome you all to the next episode of Prescribing Your Career Success, the only podcast for residents and medical students looking for the inside track to career success presented by Provider First. My name is Tyler, and today's episode is made possible by the power of social media because my two guests today are not only leaders in their field, but are also uh, sharing their experiences and improving patient care via their social media channels. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Zain Hassan. He is a board-certified trauma anesthesiologist who has been an attending for the last seven years with a career that has spanned New York, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and now California. Joining him in this conversation is Dr. Patrick Jaguer, a fourth-year anesthesiology resident at Northwestern here in Chicago. Uh, who studied at Boston University, attended medical school at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School, and will be completing a critical care medicine fellowship at Northwestern next year. So I'm really grateful that uh, Dr. Hassan and Dr. Jaguer could join me today. And I want to thank you both for generously sharing your thought leadership and career success with our audience. I'm going to let uh, Dr. Jaguer take over in a minute here, but I wanted to just start by asking each of you um, just to share if you want to introduce yourselves um, but also to share a little bit about why you chose the medical schools that you are either going to now or that you went to. Dr. Jaguer? So I uh, decided to attend uh, the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. It's actually in the town that I grew up in. Um, and for me, uh, that motivation uh, came from both its academic standing, but also how it fit into my personal life, which was at that point in time, I wanted to be very close to my family. Uh, so I think different people have different motivations for what schools they choose. Um, and then currently I'm attending uh, Northwestern uh, for anesthesia residency. And that decision really came from doing some away rotations with different programs and seeing kind of what uh, educational philosophy I really uh, connected with. And that's where I found myself at Northwestern. Nice. And Dr. Hassan? Yeah, so thank you guys for having me. Uh, I I did my resident or I did my residency over at University of Buffalo in New York. Um, that's because of the place that I matched uh, for medical school. I ended up going to uh, the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, probably because I wasn't as um, I wasn't as academically sound as I as I am now. So I ended up going to osteopathic school. And uh, residency wise, I did uh, Buffalo, which was fantastic. Very cool. All right, Dr. Jaguar, I'll let you uh, help lead the conversation with Dr. Hassan and find out a little bit about his career success while sharing insight into your experience as a fourth-year resident. Wonderful. Uh, so I think just to start off, it's always interesting to hear how different physicians were motivated to go into their uh, specialty. What things about anesthesia first attracted you? Yeah, so when I, so uh, long story, but when I first got into medical school, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I thought that was the coolest, uh, most influential specialty out there. You had the most influence in the hospital, all those kind of things. But as I went through residency, or sorry, medical school, and I saw the different specialties and I saw the lifestyle that surgeons had, I realized pretty quickly that in order to be a surgeon, you have to be married to medicine. You can't really help more than one patient at a time. Um, anesthesia provided me the opportunity to not only be involved in operations, surgeries, uh, clinical medicine, critical medicine, but it also allowed me to have other interests outside of medicine to hopefully, you know, 
help as many people and, and, and be as influential as possible. So that's the reason I ended up choosing anesthesia when I chose it. And I didn't know it was going to lead me to the path that I'm down now. But um, at that point, I felt that it had the best mix of all the different specialties. And it also had the most um, immediate impact in people's lives. And the way I describe it to anybody who's going into medicine or going into anesthesia is anesthesia, you meet your patient the day of surgery it's usually the worst day of their life. Um, they're not typically, nobody's excited to have surgery unless you're having plastic surgery or, you know, those limb lengthening surgeries. But aside from that, most people don't want to have surgery. And so um, you have to not only convey trust and earn their trust within the five to seven minutes that you see them. Um, and they have to basically hand over their life and bodily functions to you. Uh, but not only that, but you also have a lot of complexities that nobody else sees. Um, nobody else knows about and you have to manage the patient through. And if you do a good job, they won't remember you. So <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy, but, uh, but I love it, you know, cause it affords you the ability to impact people's lives, have a life outside of medicine and you get to do all the fun parts of medicine. You don't have to do the boring paperwork. You don't have to do the boring rounds and all that kind of stuff. It's usually just the most immediate, immediate hands-on field that you can be in. I think you just spoke to many of the same reasons that I was first attracted to anesthesia as well. I think that patient connection and really gaining trust is something that can't be underscored enough. Um, I also think that you spoke to the diversity within our specialty that I think a lot of people maybe um, who don't uh, work in medicine might not know about. Um, in terms of um, with medical students who are thinking about anesthesia, what kind of things about the career do you think that they should keep in mind? Yeah, so the the biggest thing is after the COVID pandemic, um, anesthesia has increased in popularity probably tenfold from when I applied and what it was 10 years before that. Now, maybe 20 years ago, anesthesia was a very hot specialty when reimbursements were high and people don't have to work as much. Then as reimbursements came down, it didn't become a choice specialty at all uh it was not you know one of the ones that everybody thought about but after the covid pandemic not only was there an immediate need for anesthesiologists there was an impact that you were making directly on public health um you know with the ventilators the intubations the surgeries all those kind of things um, it really shined light onto our field uh before there was a lot less um i guess glamour associated with anesthesia but now um especially since the pandemic the 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 glamour factor has increased, but you should understand that the complexity of anesthesia is increasing as well. People are living longer, getting sicker, having surgeries way later in life. As uh, straightforward as it might have been maybe 10, 15 years ago, it's a lot more complex. And so if any medical student is thinking about going into it, um, the biggest thing I would say is, one, you have to have good board scores. You have to make the right connections um, in residency or sorry, in, with residents, residency directors, program directors, all those kind of people have good letters. And that there's a little bit of a different expectation than there was before the pandemic. Um, and that's ever evolving, ever changing, but it's really awesome to see that our field and our specialty is getting the recognition and the love that, um, we so desperately wanted, you know, 10 years ago. And I think it's great that you speak to kind of the fact that the field has become much more popular. And I think matching into anesthesia has become much more challenging. Um, in terms of uh, advice for medical students that are rotating through anesthesia or going on away rotations, how do you think a medical student can be most successful on those rotations? 
Yeah. So the, the biggest thing, so, so this is funny. And, and um, I think a lot of the anesthesia attendings would probably agree. The reason a lot of, a lot of people chose anesthesia in the past was not because of, um, was not because of the uh, medi or sorry, the reason why most people chose anesthesia in the past is because when they met their anesthesia attendings, they gelled with their personality and the personalities in anesthesia usually are a little bit more uh, lax. We're not as um, high end, high strong, uh, medical pr pr practitioners like neurosurgeons or any type of surgeon. Um, so the biggest thing that I would say is you have to make a connection when you're doing your away rotations, when you're doing your rotations at your institution, try to get, um, try to get an understanding of what the personality is for an school. It's very easy to say that I want to do this or I want to do that. But as you go through your rotations, you'll realize my personality gels more with radiologists or it gels more with an ER. I like to do outdoor stuff and, and adventure and those kind of things. So, and I would say the best way to get into an anesthesia residency or to make the connections that you need to become an anesthesiologist, one, obviously board scores and all those things, but two, the personality factor. You have to be flexible. You have to be willing to help. You have to be part of a team. You have to understand team dynamics, which is very different than what you, you would think that was an anesthesia, but you have to understand how you work in a team because most departments are not set up as one-stop shops. You know, there's, there's multiple people, multiple attendings, residents, CRNAs, AAs, it's a giant team and you're working with a wide myriad of surgeons every single day who have difficult personalities, who have great personalities, and you have to be able to blend all those things together. So if you want to go into anesthesia, my biggest advice is one, do well in your scores because it's become more competitive. But two, when you're on your rotations, make friends with those attendings, make friends with those senior residents, become close contacts with them, text them before the match, all those kind of things that will help you a lot more than what will, um, than trying to, you know, intubate a patient or do any of that kind of stuff. The personality, the willingness to learn, the willingness to be there, those are the most important key factors, in my opinion, uh, if you want to get into an anesthesia residency. I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, oftentimes students get boggled down in trying to impress on doing procedures and intubations. And honestly, it's the uh, interactions that we have with students um, as residents. And I know as attendings, it's the same. Um, and kind of their willingness to be challenged that I think impresses us. Yeah. Um, jumping gears, can you tell me a bit about what residency was like for you? Yeah, so residency for me was a little different than it is for you probably now. So when I was a re when I was a resident, uh, it was a lot more intense. Um, it, it has come down uh, significantly with the changes, especially with since the pandemic. But before, uh, for us, it was you know sixty five, seventy, sometimes seventy five hours a week. Um, every day was ten, twelve hours, and and there are pluses and minuses to both of it. And I see the side from the residents now where it's like, you know, you need time to study, you need time to have a life, you need time to do all those kind of things. Um, and from our end, when we were in it, there wasn't an option to, you know, do those kind of things. You were training the same way they trained the last 20 years. So you were putting in the hours, you were putting in the actual manual work hours, which, uh, which for anesthesia, in my opinion, is important because the emergencies that happen in anesthesia are fairly rare. They don't, they don't happen every single day. So you have to be present in the room to see it happen, to see what the manifestations of a pneumothorax is or hypotension or pericardial effusion. You, don't, you see it so seldom that if you're not there, you can read about it all you want in books, but until you experience a bronchospasm on a flip of a patient, you don't really know what to do unless you've lived through it. So um, for me, and that's a little, you know, I got, I, get, I got sidetracked, but that's, that's my opinion that for anesthesia, the, the, 
the hardest part is balancing work-life balance. For us, when I was a resident, it was tough. I mean, we were there every day, probably 10, 12 hours. Um, we did a lot of calls, all those kind of things. And now it's a little different with the changes in healthcare, and it's only inevitable. And I, I don't, I don't try to fight it or anything like that. It's the way the technology and the world is progressing. But the one caveat I would throw in there is that anesthesia, where you, act, uh, I mean, I guess it is in a, in a sense, but. Uh, you have to be present to see the emergencies, to see the management in order to create that algorithm in your head that when you see it as an attending 10 years later, that you remember, hey, this is what I do, ABC, because I did it during residency, because I saw this during residency, because I did this difficult airway during residency. Um, so that's my biggest caveat to the whole thing. I, I don't have the right answer for it, but um, but that's how my residency was. I think it's always um, going to be a push and a pull with uh, new trainees and the changes in the field. Um, I would say my residency program, we're probably um, still working similar hours to maybe how you worked during residency. So I think different programs are different and different rotations within residency have different time commitments. Um, yep. Residency is a challenging time. How did you take care of yourself during residency with those long hours? Uh, you know, what I would, what I would say is, um, Patrick, I didn't, I didn't do the best. Uh, and this is something that I preach now a lot more mental health. When I was going through training mental health for residents, for medical students, for surgeons, um, it wasn't a thing. And, uh, there was no awareness of it. There was no resident days. There was no wellness days. So what I did personally was I made sure, made sure that I got to the gym uh, five days a week. That was my outlet for getting, um, the stress, the anxiety out, um, every single day. Now I didn't have, I was in Buffalo. It wasn't like it was, you know, warm and sunny. We couldn't go to the beach or anything like that. But, um, I made sure myself to always go to the gym at least five days a week, you know, three days during the week and every weekend, Monday, uh, Saturday, Sunday. So that was the way I took care of myself eating healthy and doing that. But, um, and I had, I had my vices too, you know, I, I'd have Chipotle every <laughs> four to five <laughs> times a week. I didn't, I didn't hold back. You know, they had that challenge and I you went, uh, 25 times in a month you get, uh, and, and my, and my co-residents who are now, uh, they're now, uh, chiefs at, you know, different institutions. They'll remember it. Cause I went, I would, I would be the one that would bring Chipotle to the, uh, to our study sessions, all those <laughs> kind of things. And. I did it so much, actually, that I actually got that free group award, too, which is fantastic. Nice. But yeah, <laughs> that was the way that I did it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I was the best example. Now, being where I am now and seeing it from a 30,000-foot perspective, there's a lot of other things that I think I would do differently if I was to do residency again. Um, but that was my experience. We don't have a Chipotle at Northwestern, but I can say I've eaten a considerable amount of Burrito Beach. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, I think one of the first branch points that uh, current anesthesia residents come to in deciding what type of career path they want is kind of the fellowship versus non-fellowship, and that's kind of tied to going into academics versus uh, non-academics. I know you've worked at a few different uh, uh, medical centers. Um, how was your thought process in coming to those decisions? So that's a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked that, Patrick. Um, I worked at a private institution the first four years when I was out. So I did everything. We did um, right out of residency, did open hearts, high risk OB, pediatrics, um, ENT days, all those kind of things, uh, neurosurgery, back surgery. I did everything, which I am very grateful for. I did the, the first place that I joined was a high risk OB center in Minneapolis. We did 
10 to 12 epidurals at, you know, 200 to 300 in a year, which was insane. We also learned how to do all our own blocks. They were using catheters at the time, which I'd never done in residency. Um, now I know how to place catheters and all the regional stuff. So I, I have a little bit of different perspective. I did all that. Then I went to an academic institution at UPMC, which, you know, is very um, segmented. And it's the same thing out here. It's very segmented. You have your regional team, you have your OB team, you have your cardiac team, um, which is fine. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with that, but the current situation that we're in now is that the way that I see anesthesia going is it's going to be very compartmentalized. Um, you know, if you're, if you do an OB fellowship, which I, I still don't understand what an OB fellowship is, but um, if you do an OB fellowship, you do OB only and you do 98% OB. If you do cardiac fellowship, you do, you know, 60% cardiac in your, in your entire career. If you do PEDS, you do probably 95% PEDS. Um, so it's becoming a little more segmented. There's a lot, not a lot of generalists that are out there at academic institutions that are doing everything, but private institutions, if you go to a, join a private group, you certainly need to be well-versed in everything. So outside of cardiac and peds, I think all the other fellowships for private groups are, are, um, might not be worthwhile. Maybe regional if you want to join a heavy orthopedic practice group that you need an in at. Uh, but the bigger thing for private groups, they don't really care as much about um, fellowships as they do about connections. So um, it all depends. It's individualized. It depends on what type of career you want to pursue. If you want to go the academic route, absolutely do the fellowships, do the OB fellowship, do the um, I think they added another fellowship too that I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's like spine or neuro or something like that. Um, do those fellowships if you want to do academics because it, it helps tremendously to go up the ladder in academics. But if you're doing private, you know, try to be as good as you can at everything because in private, they, there's no real preference given unless it's a difficult case. And the difficult cases get uh, broken down into either, you know, cardiac cases for the cardiac cases for the pediatric people and everybody else kind of does everything. So, um, so it depends on which route you want to go down. Uh, that's, that would be my answer. A lot of my colleagues who are going into private practice have kind of echoed the concerns that you kind of touched upon where, um, sometimes you, you want to think that your residency has prepared you for absolutely everything, but then you get into practice and you're asked to perform procedures or things that you weren't doing as a resident. Uh, I think you touched on catheters there. How did you go about as a attending physician uh, improving new skills? Uh, that's a great question. So I was lucky enough to join a group that was well-established. I told them when I joined, hey, I don't have any experience doing catheters. I never placed any. Um, we always did single shots uh, for nerve blocks. So I didn't. I never had the experience. So they actually took me under their wing, showed me how to do it for a day or two. And then from there, I was able to fly. Um, but I did my own research. You know, I watched the uh, NYSORA website. I watched ASRO's website. I watched how they did the blocks, how they placed the catheters, all those kind of things. So I did my own research. So I kind of had to do a lot of my on the back end. Um, it's the same now because medicine itself is ever evolving, ever changing, and especially surgeries. Now, if you uh, if you do a spine case, they usually have a set medications you give, set timing, set uh, amounts you give, how much fluids you can give. All those kind of things are kind of being micromanaged. So you have to be very flexible would be my advice. If you go into private practice, you're providing a service. Uh, you're not very much a department. You're very much providing a service akin to radiology or, you know, 
uh, a couple other uh, specialties in medicine. But you have to understand that uh, if you go into private practice, the biggest thing you should take with you from residency is not only the knowledge, but the flexibility. Think like a resident, be able to adapt to the situation that you're in. That That is lost on, <clears throat> that skill is lost on older providers. So if you find an older attending, it's very hard for them if they've done a spine a certain way or if they've done, you know, the 20 years of just general uh, anesthesia, it's very It looks like uh, <clears throat> Dr. Hassan will join us again in a second. While I have you here, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Jaguer, I wanted to ask you, so um, we talked about, you, know, you asked um, Dr. Hassan about why he went with uh, anesthesia. What was it that made that drew you to it that made you want to, you know, dedicate so much time and uh, energy to? So for me, I found my way to anesthesia. I was a human physiology major in college and really loved learning about the cardiac system, respiratory system. And then anesthesia gave me the opportunity to see how that physiology that I learned about in textbooks played out in real time. And I think what I saw were clinicians that were experts at um, utilizing uh, their procedures, their medications to augment that physiology in real time and have like a hands-on uh, impact on their patients. Uh, I was lucky enough to do some research as an undergraduate at the Massachusetts General Hospital and uh, shadow some cardiac anesthesiologists. And that's kind of what opened my eyes to the field. Nice, nice. Um, and as it, when you look back at like that experience of preparing and kind of deciding on anesthesia, is there any advice you would give, you know, future residents, people right now who are listening and thinking about anesthesia? Yeah, so I think um, I think Dr. Hassan really touched on uh, some of these uh, aspects of our career that is unique, and it's that you know we're interacting with patients for such a short period of time, but we can have a really yeah. huge impact on their uh, post-op care. Um, so I think that uh, future uh, medical students looking into the field or residents currently in the field um, can really. Uh, don't minimize the impact that we have um, because while the surgeons are doing a great job uh, operatively, they can't do their work without us. Nice. Well, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask those quick questions to you, Dr. Jaguar. I'll let you get back to um, your questions for Dr. Hassan. All right. Uh, so um, I think now I'd like to switch gears again a little bit because as uh, was mentioned in your introduction, you have quite the social media following on TikTok. How did that come about for you? Yeah, that's quite interesting. So that came about by chance. Uh, I was just, you know, I, I love social media in the past. I love doing it. I loved uh, talking to people, but I never understood the reach that you can get. And there was a huge um, dearth of medical influencers. A lot of, uh, during COVID, a lot of, you know, misinformation got out there. A lot of, uh, widespread uh, false claims and medicine got it there. So I saw, I thought maybe, you know, maybe I could do this. So I, I, I started as a very simple, simple videos that I said, you know, these are the things that I'm seeing saying work, you know, this medication works, this scan works, this saves somebody's life. Maybe it could help somebody else out. And that's how I started. Um, and that caught traction. And then I realized, you know, the impact you can make on social media is probably 10 X you can make writing to any journal and publishing any paper that maybe only, you know, a hundred people would read total. Um, 
so I I ended up uh, I ended up going into the social media realm because of that because if you I my wife she spends hours writing papers all the time and um, you know maybe she's lucky maybe a hundred people will read it across the world and and those hundred people might you know it might impact those people but my videos are able to reach you know a million people here a million people there and and the messages I get back on social media hey doc you told me my blood pressure at 175 resting was too high. I went to my doctor, got it checked out. Turns out I have this or I have that. Or I went in for surgery and I, I listened to you about Ozempic and my surgery was not canceled. It went through. I was so happy that you told me about the risks and all those kind of things. That, that impact that I'm making. And it's been a short while for me. It's only been, you know, six six months that I've been doing it. The, the amount of letters, emails, uh, messages that I get from people saying, thank you for telling us this. Thank you for telling us that. This helped me. This saved me. Um, it's, it's, it's gratifying, but it's also, you know, it motivates you because it's like, wow, you can make an impact in so many people's lives without ever meeting them. And that is something that was foreign to me in medicine. I always thought you had to see a person, see a patient and treat them one-to-one. And now with the ability and the reach that I have, I can help, you know, thousands of people, millions of people, um, hopefully. And that's kind of my goal with what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not, I'm not as funny as some of the people on TikTok that make, you know, uh, funny videos, but I feel like I have the ability to talk to people and for people to understand what I'm saying, because my goal is to simplify a lot of the medical jargon, medical lingo that is out there. Um, and, and it's been, it's been quite fulfilling. It's a pretty awesome, awesome experience, an awesome journey that I'm down right now. And I, and I love it. Yeah. I think I came across one of your videos after, uh, having to cancel a case for someone with Ozempic and um, your video came up that same day. Uh, and I liked the way that the way you engage with um, your viewers is you're providing these very uh, concise, digestible bits of really useful information. And I think it goes to kind of educators show uh, people, especially not involved in medicine, kind of the impact that our uh, uh, specialty has on uh, their care. So I thank you for kind of engaging the public because I think in the post-COVID world, that's very important as there's tons of misinformation on the internet and on the internet that you kind of alluded to. Um, yeah. What has it been like balancing the nature of being a medical professional and having a social media presence? Because I think for many people that I talk to that try to engage on social media, it's always a bit of a difficult balance. How do you come to that balance? Yeah, so I, I have some hard and fast rules. I, I, I won't record in the operating room. I won't record when I'm actually working, working, because that's unfair to any patient that I'm taking care of. So I will not um, do any sort of social media while I'm in the operating room, while I'm covering cases, any of that kind of stuff. Number two, I'll never speak specifically about any patient um i i so i get a lot i get a lot of messages that are like hey doc i have uh this 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 and this uh my surgeon canceled my case or my person somebody's worried or this thing's going on with this tumor and i'm i i i try to respond to all of them by saying you know my advice is not specific to you because i don't know the entire picture of whatever patient is going through what i can give you generalized advice so that's that's kind of the rules that I stick by is that I, I give advice that is more generalized, not person specific. And I always, 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 always tell them to talk to their doctor, use the information that I told you, but always confirm with the doctor if that's what is good for you or is not good for you. 
Um, but those are the kind of two rules that I hold to fast. Now, that isn't the case. Not a lot, but some social media physicians will even live stream surgeries, which, uh, which I think is kind of uh, bonkers because, you know, to the amount of concentration you need to do surgery is – and anytime you're on your – streaming or you know people are watching you're not going to perform the same way you should so i i tend to shy away from that there was also you know people that got into legal trouble by these by live streaming surgeries and that complications you know all those kind of things so I, I tend to stay away from um specific medicine streaming to, or or social media that's my goal i try to do more public outreach public health public bigger <clears throat> bigger macro macro health issues as opposed to specific you know i had a patient who did this and i did this to, to help them you know what i mean so those are the kind of things that i try to implement in my life because i don't want one i don't want to have any hipaa violations or any of that kind of stuff but two i i, I look to the patients and i don't want anybody to be embarrassed anybody to be exposed any of those when a patient tells you their medical information they're trusting you and that's some trust that i hold dearly i will not reveal you know, anybody that I've taken care of, anybody who's, you, you know, it could be a, a celebrity or it could be a, a, a person on the street. I, I will not delve into the or, or even go into those areas, but I'll try to balance it by talking about bigger health issues, whether it's hypertension or, or diabetes or, you know, cutting edge surgeries, those kind of things. So that's how I delineate and differentiate my, my social media from other medical streamers. Well, again, I really do thank you for engaging with the public. And um, I think it's uh, important that you are, you know, doing uh, this outreach responsibly. And I think you spoke to many of the reasons why I think a lot of medical influencers can get themselves in trouble with uh, how they produce their content. Um, that being said, you've amassed quite the following. I think it's close to half a million at this point. Um, have you yeah. had any of your patients come to the uh, pre-op area and say that they notice you from TikTok? <laughs> yeah, that has happened a lot more recently. Um, I've had patients say, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I have a celebrity doctor. <laughs> I'm on TikTok. I'm so, it, it happens more than you can imagine now. That uh, It wasn't a thing maybe when I started, but now it's, it's, it's cool. It's nice to see. I love talking to people. I, I don't consider myself a celebrity or anything like that. I I have the following, but I don't, I, if you talk to me, if you meet me and, um, and most, most people that I, <laughs> most physicians, other practitioners that I talk to, I don't even mention the social media. If somebody brings it up, I'll absolutely engage in it, but I, it's never a topic of, uh, a topic that I bring up because I don't want to lose that intimacy there is in, in practicing medicine. I don't want to lose that, um, you know, being in the community. I think it's important that you're in the community, even if you become, you know, a celebrity on a, a TV show, you still have to practice to, to, to be engaged and know what's going on, to know how patients are feeling, to know how people are feeling because I, <clears throat> and one other thing for me, Patrick, I hate, I, I don't know if other people <clears throat> think of it the same way, but I, when I call people patients, patients, it feels a little bit desensitizing. I love calling people, people. And, and so um, when I engage with people in the hospital, it gives me a sense of purpose and that's the reason that's what I don't want to lose. So I have certainly have had patients come up to me and say, I follow you on TikTok. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing that. But I don't lose that sense of intimacy that there is when you, a patient trusts you with their life. And so I try to, I try to balance both. It's a little bit harder. And I don't think a lot of, 
I don't think it's easy for a lot of people to do that. Um, but it is something that I try to work toward actively. I think that's an important point and a kind of aspect of our field where I think surgeons oftentimes have to kind of take that humanity out when they're performing their operation. You know, they're looking at an operative field. But I think as anesthesiologists, we are trained to think about the whole person and that, you know, goes beyond just the intraoperative medical care, kind of uh, making them feel at ease in the pre-op area, making sure that their concerns are heard. So I think that's really important to humanize our patients. Um, well, I thank you so much for sharing uh, your um, views on the field of anesthesia and your experiences uh, throughout residency and um, attending life. Uh, so thank you for kind of sharing all that with us. No problem. And Patrick, I'd like to say uh, before, before we end that, you know, anesthesia is ever evolving. I still think it's probably the best job in America, um, bar none. Uh, maybe, you know, a uh, CEO of a giant hedge fund would be better. But uh, <laughs> aside, aside from that, uh, there's, there's a lot of aspects to anesthesia that I would not trade any other field for. Um, there's a lot of everyday things that make you feel fulfilled in medicine, generally speaking. And there's a lot of cutting edge technology, which I love. And so I would, I would absolutely advocate anybody who wants to go into anesthesia, go into it. Don't worry about the the naysayers that, you know, it's a doom, doomed specialty or any of that kind of stuff. Anesthesia will be here. It'll be here <clears throat> for a long time and people will get sicker. Absolutely will get sicker and they will require uh, the skills you attain as an anesthesiologist to help them um, toward throughout their life. And so I, I would absolutely advocate anybody and anybody that wants to go into it. You can feel free to message me on Instagram or Facebook. That's where I respond to most of the messages, but I, I strongly advocate for the field. I think it has very, very far reaching um, uh, events on the horizon that I think are going to be fantastic for the field. So I'm a proponent of our field. I love it. I do it every day and I hope it uh, only gets better from here. I can't agree more. I honestly think it's the best uh, area of medicine. And um, I think the more people learn about our field, we are involved in so many different aspects of patient care beyond just uh, interoperative anesthesia. So I think there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon as well. Yeah, I, I would just uh, sort of interject and say thank you again to both of you for joining us. And before we get to the final goodbyes, I'm going to keep you for one last minute here. Um, I just have rapid fire questions for both of you. <clears throat> Feel free to answer as you go. Um, I wanted to know what's the best and then the worst class you remember taking in your residency or your medical school? Yeah, in your residency. And then the other question was, you know, advice on people for people who want to match. So I know we kind of talked about, you know, growing your network and really engaging with people. Um, but something that's off the top of your head, the best uh, advice you can give someone looking to match an anesthesia. And then lastly, um, you know, whether you're in residency, <clears throat> preparing to go into your fellowship, or you're actually already a practicing provider, uh, like you, Dr. Hassan, can you just share one piece of advice on how you both find that work-life balance, like what you do, if it's still the gym or whatever it might be, um, that helps you have a good work-life balance in your stressful field? Sure. So um, I guess in residency, we do different rotations, and there's something different for everyone. I think I talked about there's, you know, so many aspects of anesthesia. And for me, the one that didn't jive was probably chronic pain. Um, but honestly, I've liked most other parts of my training. 
And as for medical students interested in anesthesia, I think the best thing that you can do is just show up to your rotations, engaged, ready to learn, ready to be challenged. And, you know, if there's something you don't know or a procedure that you don't perform well at, don't let it get you down because it's really just your ability to show up and uh, kind of uh, acclimate to the environment and have situational awareness that we really look for uh, for residents and uh, medical students to be successful in anesthesia. Um, as for, I think the last question was, what do I do to keep sane in training? So yeah. um, residency is definitely a grueling process, long hours. Um, you're, you have little time outside of the hospital that you're kind of balancing your ability to have a life uh, and have relationships out of the hospital and also uh, making time to study in your off time. For me, I very similar uh, to Dr. Hassan, I go to the gym seven days a week. It's my priority. Uh, no matter what hours I'm working, what, I'm, uh, what I have going on, I always make that hour when I get out of work because it uh, definitely puts my mental health in a better place. Um, I think it's my ability to uh, decompress the work day and kind of come home feeling refreshed that gets me to keep on going. Nice. That's great. Um, for me, so the hardest rotation I had in residency absolutely was uh, pediatrics. If you've ever done pediatrics after doing regular anesthesia, everything is microdosed. <laughs> Under that learning curve was high. And then if you have to do, um, you know, 10 tonsillectomies in a day, that's high turnover plus high stress plus babies. So all the, all those things were very difficult, yeah. high learning curve. But I love that we did it because now I'm comfortable doing uh, pediatric tonsils when a lot of my colleagues aren't. Uh, the biggest uh, advice that I would give for medical students who want to come into residency or match into anesthesia, um, same thing as Patrick said, show up, show up early, uh, show that you're interested. You know, knowing all the medications, knowing all the procedures probably isn't going to, you know, impress anybody because uh, the attendings are kind of judging residents based on what they know. So if you, you trying to out, you know, maneuver or out impress a resident is very, very rare. Uh, more than likely, your enthusiasm, your personality, your willingness to be present will probably carry you a lot farther than, you know, if you know a mechanism of action of a medication or what to, or how to place a breathing tube, um, those things. You'll... <clears throat> and, and the uh, third part, the mental health aspect of it. So that has evolved for me. And, and I'll take a second just to, just to put this out there. I think that residency itself, uh, the one I I'm totally with the residents uh, who are going down the route of, you know, uh, trying to get more money or more time off or better work-life balance. I think that's important nowadays, especially after the COVID pandemic medicine itself has to adapt to what, what the society is, you know, saying is right versus wrong today's day and age, the power is with the worker. So I think that uh, le leadership has to understand that, you know, a lot of residents are overworked. A lot of residents are stressed out beyond their imagination. They are working insane hours, low pay, uh, spending majority of their social time in the hospital. And that's tough. And that's not meant for everybody. And that's not what we want medicine to be when it when it continues. So I think that um, prioritizing mental health for residents is immensely important. Myself, 
I wish I knew this beforehand. I would have done a lot more things, but now that I've, you know, taken time to do meditation or working out or even just spending time with my son, my family, we're in California. Now we do every day. We try to get out and get out in the sun, get the vitamin D, all those kind of things. So I think I don't have an exact answer for how to prioritize uh, for residents now, but I do, I'm a strong proponent of all the residents and all the residency programs out there that are making efforts to help residents feel like they are more uh, humanized as opposed to working robots and taking a page from the tech playbook of, you know, helping with whatever it is, whether it's laundry or babysitting services or, uh, you know, um, time off, all those kind of things. I think that's where society's going. And I'm a proponent of any program that does any effort to help their residents feel more like humans and less like robots inside the hospital. Nice. Well, I have to say you gave me the perfect uh, segue into provider first. I mean, that's, that's what we were born out of the idea that there has to be an implied or excuse me, an explicit work-life balance for the providers, whether they're in residency or practicing um, and really just encouraging people. Like you talked about, you know, the, the priority being on the, the worker <clears throat> and encouraging people to put themselves first in that process. So um, I'm basically giving you my ad here at the end anyway, but before we do that, I just want to say thank you again so much to Dr. Hassan and Dr. Jaguer uh, for joining us today. Not only did you share your thought leadership, but I think you put into practice uh, something you both talked about, which was giving back and you know engaging with your community, whether it be patients or in this case with um, current or future providers and current or future residents. So um, on behalf of all of our, all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, it was a huge pleasure, and I'm glad that uh, social media is so powerful, and I was able to connect with both of you. Uh, so this podcast is brought to you by Provider First Recruiting. Provider First Recruiting isn't just our name, it's our commitment. We believe that by putting the provider first in the hiring process, we guarantee top-tier talent and ultimately make a positive impact on patient care. When providers are the priority in the hiring process, they're able to focus their attention on patient care and on building their practice. Provider First Recruiting is your personal one-on-one -on -one trusted advisor, whether you're hiring world-class providers or looking for your ideal practice experience. Thank you both again. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You're welcome.